Well, and you can see why. Uh, if this is what Catholics, and I would say most Christians are uh, have as an understanding about themselves and about the nature of reality, why would an atheist dictator, um, why would Pol Pot, why would Mao, why would uh, any other atheistic regime, Kim Jong, any of them, right? Uh, yeah. Any of why would they have such a problem with Christianity? Is because they recognize an authority that is higher than that of the state. Well, hello, and welcome to another perfectly balanced, as all things should be, episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Check us out at chnetwork.org. And if you want to get involved in kind of deeper conversations about the things that we talk about here in this little program, please come visit us, especially in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Ken was a Baptist pastor. I was kind of an evangelical youth group bookstore, punk rock guy. Uh, we are trying to bring our experience to bear on a lot of questions related to um, Catholicism and uh, other ideas in the marketplace of ideas. We've been working on atheism uh, for a while, Ken, and trying to reframe this conversation because a lot of times it gets real heated and we want to make sure that in this we're not saying you're stupid, no, you're stupid. That's where these conversations tend to go on the internet. Not at all. You know, with all apologetics, when we were talking about Protestantism, we we ne- were never intending to say Protestants are bad or, you know, or bashing Protestants. We are dealing with a worldview and trying to explain how we came to abandon the Protestant worldview and accept the Catholic worldview. And the same thing with atheists. You know, I'm not bashing in the least bit. By the way, you were a punk rock. So uh, you were a singer, right? Among other things, yes. So, so like, did you know how to scream really loud and high? You mean like the Cookie Monster vocals and stuff? <laughs> I don't I know mean, about that. I didn't do as much of that stuff, but I was in bands that did do that sort of thing. I was just, I sang during the pretty parts. Are they shrieking because they're angry? No, they're just emphatic about the points they're trying to make. Much like you yourself, Ken, in this particular episode of On the Journey. You want me to shriek th- this episode? No, I think that might clip the uh, clip the mic a little bit. Okay, all right. Watch your levels. Okay, watch your levels. Well, look, let me. Uh, okay, I'll watch my levels. What we've been talking about um, the subject of morality the last two weeks. This is our third, actually, and we, we have a little bit more. We've been talking about the, the tension that those experience who, on the one hand, deny the existence of God, and therefore deny the existence of an objective moral law in this material universe. And yet, on the other hand, know that right and wrong are real and and live as though right and wrong were real entities. Um, they know, you know, I will suggest, and I, I know you agree, I they know that right and wrong are real because they're the image and likeness of God, because they've been created by God, and God's moral law has been written on their hearts. They cannot account for right and wrong being real because their materialist worldview doesn't provide a basis for it. So that's the tension. Now, a few 
when they think this through, just bite the bullet and accept a total moral relativism. You know, Stalin's ethics were his, Mother Teresa's were hers, you know, uh, who else? I mean, you know, Princess Di, I don't know, Hitler, to each his own. Ethics are totally relative from person to person or from society to society, and who are we to judge? Some do that, but most do not. Most attempt to ground morality, some system of morality, in some utilitarian or consequentialist scheme. And we'll say things like, you know, whatever doesn't hurt anyone else is right. Or whatever results in the greatest total amount of happiness is right, Peter Singer. Or whatever science can determine most conduces to human flourishing and well-being, this is what we will call right, Sam Harris. Um, What I want to do today is I want to begin by pointing out that between these various proposals for constructing moral codes without God, between these various proposals and what the atheist says is true about the universe in which we live, attention still exists, okay? There's no escaping from tension. In, in, In short, it's this. The worldview of scientific materialism doesn't lead naturally to anyone seeking the happiness of others or being concerned about what hurts others or anything like that. Scientific materialism, the worldview of atheism, doesn't lead naturally to even these utilitarian or consequentialist schemes. And I want to spend a few minutes kind of unraveling that, unwinding it a bit by giving a couple of illustrations. Atheist philosopher Michael Roos describes morality in a universe in which there is no God in these words. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. It's an illusion. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring to some moral law existing above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It's ephemeral, okay? It's this, this ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It's nothing more than an aid to survival and reproduction. It has no existence beyond this, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Okay, given this, I'm going to give a couple of illustrations, but, but given Michael Roos's statement here, why wouldn't right for me be whatever aids in my survival and <clears throat> reproduction? Why should I care about the greatest total of happiness for anyone else? Certainly, why should I care at all about what hurts anyone else? Another or if it's ephemeral, yeah. yeah, I was about to say. Or if it's ephemeral, yeah. why should we not say, well, we shouldn't judge uh, certain things that happened in the past because that was a different era that was operating it to a, according to a different oh, moral yeah. code. Like for instance, uh, what we shouldn't judge people who, uh, you know, engaged in chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade because uh, that was morally acceptable for their time period. We, in our era, that's not morally acceptable, but there is no moral real code that says that we can look back and say what that was was an offense to human dignity because, again, it's a byproduct of the evolutionary process. Yeah, and the evolutionary process is moving on, and so moral codes are going to change along the way. Good point. Okay, another example. Given, uh, uh, I mean, according to the atheist Richard Dawkins, who we've quoted a couple of times on this, 
Dawkins says this material universe is a universe in which there is, quote, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing, okay, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Okay, there's nothing in this universe but blind, pitiless, no pity, indifference. And so again, I ask, if the universe is characterized in this way by blind, pitiless indifference, why should I base my entire moral code and my uh, moral life on caring about the happiness of others. We're thinking of it slightly different. Thinking in Darwinian survival of the fittest terms, um, the poet Tennyson famously described nature as red in tooth and claw. What an image. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Well, if this is the nature of nature, um, if the law of nature is the survival of the fittest, again, I could ask exactly why am I supposed to care for the weak, especially, why would I care for the weak? In fact, Charles Darwin himself commented on how the virtue of compassion seemed in Western societies to work against the survival of the fittest in which the human species evolves and improves and moves itself forward. He, he mentions that, that compassion, the virtue of compassion is actually working against the true law of nature, which is the survival of the fittest. Listen to what he said. We civilized men we do our utmost to, to check, that is to slow down. We do our utmost to slow down the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. You get more weak members. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a lack of care or care wrongly directed leads to the de degeneration of the domestic race. But excepting the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. He says, look at people who tend animals. No one is so stupid. No one is so ignorant as to allow their worst animals to breed. And yet he says, strangely, in the Western societies, he goes, you know, we do everything to keep people alive. Um, we have compassion. I mean, it, doesn't this go completely against, mu mustn't this be highly injurious to the race of men, you know, to, to quote him? Okay, but let me push it. Darwin didn't apply the survival of the fittest only to indiv individuals within societies. He applied it to entire races. Again, quoting Darwin, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. And in the context, he specifies that by savage races, he's referring to the Negro race, his word, and the Australian races, the Aboriginal races, his word. He says, the civilized races, which are the European races, will almost certainly exterminate. In other words, over time, Dharma was saying, all the transitional forms, such as the gorilla, such as the Negro, such as the Aboriginal, the man and woman, will become extinct, and the European race will emerge as victor in the struggle for existence. I know, this is getting dark. This is getting very uh, dark. It's, uh, but yeah. But let's, um, let's add the last point. Let's add the last point so that you can think and you can preach a good re re responsorial sermon here. He goes on to say that all of this is going to require much struggle. And if we, as citizens of the human race, if we want to do good, we should do what we can to move this process along. One last quote from Darwin. 
Man, like every other animal, has no doubt advanced to his present high condition through a struggle for existence, and if he is to advance still higher, he must remain subject to a severe struggle. There should be open competition for all men, and the most able should not be prevented by laws or customs from succeeding best and rearing the largest number of offspring. All do good service who aid toward this end. So that's Darwin uh, talking about survival of the fittest as applied to the human species. Um, and again, you know, when we talk survival of the fittest, we're not talking about like humans survive, all other species on the earth subjugate. We're talking about like humans policing their own species. Uh, mm-hmm. I uh, printed out some Margaret Sanger quotes in anticipation of this, uh, knowing where you were likely going to go with some of the things that you brought out from Darwin, because um, this whole Darwinian mindset is behind uh, and in congruity with a lot of the eugenics movement that would, well, we could talk about where else it manifested itself, but let's talk about um, the founding of the birth control movement uh, in the West. And of course, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, um, she had some pretty pretty awful things to say along those same lines as what Darwin was saying. So I'll just, mm-hmm. I have a bunch of these. I'll try and figure out the, the, the ones most pertinent to the conversation. Uh, but in The Pivot of Civilization, she wrote this. It sounds very much like Darwin. She says, the lack of balance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit, admittedly the greatest present menace to the civilization, can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. The example of the inferior classes the fertility of the feeble-minded, I think, what you say, imbeciles, was what, yeah. the, uh, what Darwin said? Um, the fertility of the feeble-minded, the mentally defective, the poverty-stricken should not be held up for emulation to the mentally and physically fit and therefore less fertile parents of the educated and well-to-do classes. Basically saying, if you're educated and well-to-do, have babies. If you're not, yeah. don't. Um, she says, on the contrary, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. Um, wow. And uh, if, in case you're wondering if what she's talking about is eugenics, uh, here's a quote from a book or a pamphlet, I believe it says. Uh, it's even titled The Eugenic Value of Birth Control Propaganda, in which she says, the campaign for birth control is not merely of eugenic value but is practically identical with the final aims of eugenics. So in case you're looking to, to connect the dots. And here's the, and here's so the founder there it is in a of, yeah. here, here's the founder of Planned Parenthood. And let me say quickly, you know, I'm not saying here that Darwin himself would have necessarily supported eugenics programs. I don't know that, but there, well, how no can he see to the future the to know exactly what was going to be on the table? Yeah. Yeah. But there's no way to escape the fact that the eugenics programs in the United States and then later in Nazi Germany were based entirely on a Darwinian worldview, an atheistic Darwinian worldview. And and I have to ask, why not, Matt? I mean, why not? After all, if it is true that our universe is what the atheists say it is, if it really is this gigantic material accident comprised of nothing but material particles interacting according to chemical and physical laws, if it just came from nowhere and it's going nowhere, instead of defining right and wrong in terms of the results that it might have, you know, of the happiness of others or making sure we don't hurt others, you know, I bring that in because that's so common now. Hey, you know, whatever doesn't hurt someone else, 
Why not define right as whatever tends toward the evolution of the species? Why not define wrong, I mean strictly in accordance with the logic, why not define wrong as whatever hampers and slows down the evolution of the species? Like, yeah. for instance, showing compassion to the weak or allowing the least fit to, to survive and propagate. Why not? Yeah, and so with this, you know, like I say, most of the people that I know who would uh, use the term pro-choice to, uh, you know, describe themselves don't follow the the harder points of Margaret Sanger here. But no. again, you have to ask why not if if Margaret Sanger and Darwin are operating from this underlying worldview, why wouldn't you take that next step? I mean, Sanger says here, um, even putting the state's weight behind mm-hmm. such things, um, she says the emergency problem of segregation and sterilization must be faced immediately. Every feeble-minded girl or woman of the hereditary type, especially of the of the moron class, there's another word, imbecile, moron, feeble-minded, uh, people call should be that. segregated during the reproductive period. We prefer the policy of immediate sterilization of making sure that parenthood is absolutely <laughs> prohibited to the feeble-minded. So just keep these people away from boys yeah. during their fertile years. Or <laughs> she uses you the word know, segregation or sterilization, one of the two. Um, you know, here's the yeah. tension. I mean, here's the tension again. You can ask the question, why doesn't Planned Parenthood have Margaret Sanger's face and statue right up there? Why aren't they promoting her and talking about her constantly as the great Some places are, but some Planned Parenthood places have decided to take her name off of stuff for these very reasons. Well, that's the tension because they know in their heart of hearts that this is evil, and yet the position logically leads to it. I mean, that's the problem that atheism has with establishing moral law, is that morality, especially when it involves love for others— compassion for those most in need, it is simply in conflict with a worldview conceived of as a brutal struggle for dominance. It's just in conflict. Let me bring in one illustration, because I listened to a lecture just last week from from a professor named Timothy Snyder. He's professor of history at Yale, and he's an expert in Eastern European history and the Holocaust and the uh, World, World War II. His lecture was on Hitler and the Holocaust, and listen to what he had to say. He, he explained from reading Mein Kampf and also Hitler's second work, he explained that, uh, that, that Hitler's ethic was rooted deeply in his view of nature. And, and his view was that man is an animal. Man is an animal and nothing more. There is no God. There is no life after death. Man is an animal, and he lives on a planet in which there is a continual warring for resources, land and food. And he said, the stronger must exterminate the weaker. They must, the stronger races must starve to death the weaker races. And this is what he believed was good. This is what he believed was right and good. And one of the main reasons that he hated the Jews, this is what Snyder brings out in his, his lecture. He says, one of the main, main reasons that he, or if not the main reason that he hated the Jews is that the Jews historically had brought ideas into the world that throw a wrench into that program of annihilation, the stronger races annihilating the weaker, because they brought in this idea of God, and they brought in the idea of man's creation in the image and likeness of God, and they brought Christianity into the world. This is Hitler's way of thinking of it. The, the Jews brought Christianity into the world, which emphasizes compassion and love, um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. According to Snyder, um, well, and then when the Jews reject Christianity, they go on to 
develop other forms of compassion like communism and whatnot. And his point was, he said that um, in Hitler's mind, uh, the Apostle Paul is the same as Trotsky. And, and Christianity and Judaism is the same as communism. These are all, they all stem from a worldview that conflicts utterly with what ought to be happening in nature. And that is a ruthless warring for resources. And so, you know, Hitler's entire plan of extermination, his entire, his anti-Semitism and his plan of extermination were rooted thoroughly in the same worldview that we're talking about. He may have been baptized Catholic, and so you'll hear atheists saying, oh, he was a Catholic, you know, and he may have used the word God for political purposes. You hear the same thing from secular people trying to argue that Hitler was a, a Christian, actually. But he was functioning with a thoroughly atheistic and Darwinian view of reality and everything that he did. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, Ken, of course, I live in the D.C. area, <clears throat> and these are, this is a marketplace of ideas, and... Uh, you know, I'm. I try to avoid political conversations at all costs, and I don't want to get into any here. But I've, I've met godless liberals, and I've met godless conservatives, right? And godless liberals, yeah. <laughs> you know, as it were, uh, are all dialed in on the abortion question, and some of them will follow Margaret Sanger all the way down this side. But I've met godless conservatives who who are against abortion, but are still mm-hmm. gung ho about sterilizing. Um, prisoners and immigrants and some other thing, other groups of people who they think well, uh, in urban areas shouldn't be breeding, shouldn't be, I mean, they're, they're, they're fine with using the power of the state to sterilize well, people you're just, you know, who they find you're unfit. Just yeah, emphasize, you're emphasizing what I mentioned, that, I mean, sin occurs in um, all people. There are people who believe in God who sin. There are people who don't believe in God who sin. We're talking about worldviews, though. Yeah. There's a major difference, and that is the atheist worldview does not provide a metaphysical basis for compassion, for morality, for these sorts of things. Yeah, and so a theistic worldview certainly does, regardless yeah, of what you don't have that support. I was about to say, and if if you don't have that theistic worldview, that Judeo-Christian, you know, love God, love neighbor thing underlying it yeah. all, and you don't answer to a supernatural force, and you're just looking at what can we afford, you mm-hmm. know, uh, fiscally, <laughs> or you know, what yeah. can we um, provide for uh, as a society. I mean, this is where you end up. It's where you end okay, up. Okay, let's shift gears though now because we've talked about human worth several weeks ago and how a materialist worldview cannot support the idea that human beings possess a special high and equal value. We've talked about morality now for a couple of weeks. And today I want to talk about the problem that atheism has with providing a basis for human rights. Okay. And um, we'll spend the remainder of our time talking about this. And let, let me quote from the uh, Declaration of Independence to begin. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, we're all familiar with this language and the, this phrase, unalienable rights. We're all familiar with it. We've heard it all of our lives. But what exactly does it mean to say to speak of rights that are unalienable? It's, it's not a word that we really use in any other context. What does it mean? Well, when you just sort of tear it apart, unalienable rights would be rights that cannot be alienated from the person. It, it's referring to rights that are inherent in us, that are innate in us as human beings. It's describing rights that belong to us by nature. And, and can't be taken away by any power on earth. 
That's what it's describing. And where would such rights come from? The Declaration of Independence, notice, many have commented, it makes an explicit connection between God and the unalienable rights that each person possesses. It, it says that we have been created equal and endowed by our creator, quote unquote, with certain unalienable rights. In other words, the, the logic of it is really, it really is airtight. It is precisely because our rights come to us from our creator, it's saying, that they are inherent. They're in us by creation and they cannot be taken away from us. They're unalienable. No one has the right on earth. No one has the authority on earth to take these rights from us because they're given to us by God and they are in us. They're inherent in us. Okay, you follow? And in fact, interestingly, uh, Thomas Jefferson says these truths are self-evident. Okay, so at least to him, it was self-evident what we've described here. Now, when we look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Matt, we find complete congruence with what I've just described. This is what the Catechism says about rights. The unalienable rights of the person must be recognized and respected by civil society and the political authority. It, it mu must be recognized and respected. These human rights depend neither on single individuals nor on parents, nor do they represent a concession made by society and the state. They belong to human nature and are inherent in the person by virtue of the creative act from which the person took his origin. Okay, you have a, a seamless description here. God, God's creation of you in his image and likeness, and therefore you have unalienable rights that do not depend on your parents, they don't depend on society, they don't depend on Ken Hensley, they don't depend on any state, and they cannot be taken from you. They're inherent in you. That's the, um, that's the beginning. That's the definition. Yep. Well, and you can see why, uh, if this is what Catholics, and I would say most Christians are uh, have as an understanding about themselves and about the nature of reality, why would an atheist dictator, uh, why would Pol Pot, why would Mao, why would uh, any other atheistic regime, Kim Jong, any of them, right? Uh, yeah. Any of Why would they have such a problem with Christianity is because they recognize an authority that is higher than that of the state. Christians and recognize that, it that this that that yeah. the state can say what it wants, but yeah. there's certain things that it can't say uh, because it's not it doesn't have the authority to say uh, because that uh, there is an authority higher than the state. Yes, and that has troubled deeply formerly atheistic regimes. Troubled them deeply when Stalin in the 1930s um, was told that there are still a lot of people in the Ukraine that believe in God, this was a problem. This was one of the reasons why he wanted massive purges to take place, and massive purges did take place. Okay, but I want to include the atheist as someone who believes in this, because whether we believe in God or not, these unalienable rights that I've just described here, they're precisely the sort of rights that we all seem to believe in, just like we all seem to believe in morality and right and wrong and, and the special value of human life and all that. These are precisely the sorts of rights that most all people seem to believe in and, and cherish and insist on for themselves and for others. In fact, I'll push it further. There are many who are secular to the core 
and would, would even identify as atheists who devote their entire lives to fighting for the recognition of human rights. And I would say they do this because they know, again, in their heart of hearts, that human beings possess the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, this is no problem, for again, for those of us that hold to a theistic, a Christian theistic worldview, because our worldview provides a perfectly coherent metaphysical basis, foundation for belief in the existence of this of these kinds of rights, just like the, the um, Declaration of Independence said. Rights that come to us from God, rights that we are endowed by our Creator with, rights that, that are inherent in us and cannot be taken away, can't be alienated. Our worldview makes perfect sense of this, but again, as we've seen with morality and with human value, as much as those who would identify as atheists believe in unalienable human rights, they cannot, again, for the life of them, they cannot account for such rights on the basis of their worldview. In a universe comprised of nothing but ever-evolving material substances, matter and energy, there is no one to bestow such rights. There's no one to grant us unalienable rights. It's just a blank. Again, it's blind, pitiless indifference. If there is no God, I mean, it just logically follows, I think, ineluctably, inescapably. If there is no God, then whatever rights you possess and I possess must be rights that are granted to us by others. By the whole group, by the king, by the dictator, by our mother, our father, by someone, it, the rights we possess must be rights, logically, that are granted to us by others because there is no God to grant them to us. And therefore, there are, there are no rights that are within us and cannot be taken by any force on earth. And the only problem with this is, that, is this. Rights that are granted to us by others are rights that can be taken away the moment it seems important or wise to do so. These rights are, by definition, not unalienable. And, uh, yeah. you know, radical examples. The first emperor of China, I think his name is Shi Huang Ti. He is said to have buried 460 scholars alive because they dared to tell him he was wrong about something. Um, when facing delays in the building of the Great Wall, this is a story that's told. It may be true, it may not be true, but it illustrates what can happen in a, to in a dictatorial situation where your rights come from someone else. A soothsayer told him that unless 10,000 people were buried in the wall, it would never be finished. You know, thankfully, he found a man whose name included the word Wan, which means in the, in the Chinese 10,000. And poor old Wan was buried alive in the wall and the work continued uh, unabated. Okay, again, this, this is an extreme illustration. It may not have even happened exactly as the story is told. But the, but the point is, this is the way things go when human rights are not deemed as being inherent to every person, but as being granted to us by the king, by the emperor, by parliament, by a democratic government, by whoever. All right. So with this, I can tell you right now that when I've gotten in the conversations that go to this point, the immediate objection um, that often comes back to me is says, well, you've mentioned all these atheist dictators. Uh, who have abused human rights in this and that way. Um, and the, the laundry list is long of atheistic yeah. regimes who have um, used that kind of force of authority. Um, but what about Christian governments, um, you know, who have done terrible things 
right? Perhaps even in the name of God. Um, what about Christians who were part of the slave trade or, um, you know, the conquistadors who came from mm-hmm. Christian Spain or all these other things? Okay, the difference is those people were in violation of their own principles, right? They may have been from a Christian worldview, but they were not following it the way they ought to have been following it. The, the Christian worldview did not provide for those actions. They were in violation yeah, those, of their own worldview uh, by doing yeah, those things. Those actions, those actions did not flow naturally from a worldview in which Jesus said all of the commandments of God are summed up in the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So, again, it's a... It's a different issue. Everyone can do bad, can do evil. Um, everyone, I mean, not every person, but 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 evil has been done by all sorts of people. We're to, we're comparing worldviews here, and the bottom line is, put it this way: the bottom line is, if you have if your mind is Im- imbued with the belief that God has created every person in His image and likeness, and commanded us to love every person as we love ourselves, then you're going to be less likely or it's going to follow less likely from your worldview that you would commit these kinds of atrocities. Now, you might, and and people have, and uh, nations have, and churches have, but it's going to be least like, uh, less likely than if your worldview tells you that human beings are nothing more than highly evolved animals, the forward edge of the sludge of evolution, you know, apes with a briefcase, and that when the state wants to bring in a revolutionary, you know, society, a utopian society to squash a few thousand or a few million is this not, this doesn't really matter because human life really has no meaning ultimately anyway. And human beings have no value ultimately. And that's why, by the way, I mean, we could go on with this forever, but that's why if you look at the 20th century, the regimes that most profoundly devoured their own, were the regimes, were the formerly atheist regimes of Stalin in the USSR, Mao Zedong in China. Some estimate that Mao may be responsible for the death of up to 70 million of his own citizens. Paul Pot in, um, in, the, Cambodia. in Cambodia. Yeah. Um, and, and Hitler, who, like, like I said, even though he used the word God, he was operating with a thoroughly atheistic and, uh, and uh, uh, Dar- Darwinian view of the world. Okay, but... One illustration that pops into my mind right now uh, of what I'm saying about uh, about rights that are granted to you from others is, is the case of abortion. Um, it is the mother in our country now, and in most in much of the world, it's the mother who must grant to her unborn child the right to live. And as things stand, the unborn possess no unalienable right to life. Just none, none. If the mother decides to grant to her unborn child the right to life, then the child has the right to life. And if you shoot the child, you can be, you know, you know, you know run up for murder, right? If, if you shoot the child in her womb. On the other hand, if for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the mother decides that she does not want to grant the right to life or feels she cannot grant the right to life to an unborn child, then, uh, then her child simply does not have the right to life. It, it's as simple as that. The right to life in our world now, is granted by the mother to the unborn child or not granted. A kind of a, a clarifying illustration of what we're talking about. 
even in a democratic form of government, Matt, I mean, rights that are granted by the people are not rights that we possess by nature. They're rights that can be taken away with the mood of society. Again, just taking abortion as our illustration. Before 1973, children in America possessed the right to life. After 1973, they don't. Uh, maybe later on, the Supreme Court will decide differently, and then and then unborn children will possess the right to life. I mean, it comes, it goes, it's taken, it's given. This is what is it, this is what it is like when rights are not deemed as being unalienable, inherent to us, given to us. And by who's our to creator. say? Yeah, I mean, if you are, and I know atheists who are pro-abortion, and I know who atheists who are pro-life, and both of them would say it has more to do with. Um, greater happiness well, that has to do yeah. with this particular world. So they're world still granting. Atheist. They're yeah, still granting the atheists, the right. Yeah, the atheists that I know who are pro-life would say, you're taking away this one person, this person's one shot, right? They're poof and gone forever yeah. if you kill them, yeah. right? It's unjust to not let them have that that one shot. Uh, but again, if you don't, be- if, if all you believe is that you go poof at the end of eternity or at the end of, uh, uh, of your little brief moment and there is no eternity... Then again, you're you're assigning moral value, uh, where it's hard to find like a complete like yeah. framework that uh, that provides for that um, as a moral question. Because again, this goes back to what we were talking about all last week, mm-hmm. which is if you follow scientific materialism all the way, you can't say something is moral or or immoral. You can just say I don't like this or I do like this. Um, you can't go yeah, much farther it, it, than that. It, it just winds up being that. So let, let, let me try. As I wrap this up, let me pull this into the discussion of apologetics or evangelism. Because all this t- is to say, here we have another illustration, Matt, of something that we all share belief in. I mean, mo- most all people, again, excepting some on the more radical edge, most all people believe that human life has a special high and equal value. Um, Most all people believe that morality is real, that right and wrong are something that is real, and most people try to live according to right and wrong. And the same here. Most people believe that human beings possess the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most fight for that and believe in that. Um, The problem is a consistent atheist has no basis in his worldview for such beliefs just no metaphysical basis. He can't account for them. And when I present this argument to someone, when I converse, or even now we're producing this video to be watched, I am not bashing my atheist friend. I'm not bashing anyone. I'll I'll, I'll happily bash myself for the things I've done in life. I'm bashing a worldview, and I'm, I'm bashing a worldview that I believe is wrong, and not only wrong, but is poisonous. Because once atheism, once the worldview of atheism really soaks into a person's soul, the implications begin to work their, their, their way out. And the implications are clear. Life has no meaning. Ultimately, right and wrong have no ultimate existence. We have no value. A cockroach has as much value as I have. So what I'm doing when I challenge my atheist friend, my my desire is to challenge him to make sense of his, of his true experience as a human being in the light of what he's telling me about the nature of the universe in which we live. And my hope is not that he'll become depressed and shoot himself. I mean, his atheism might lead, lead him to that. 
My hope is that the, the logical implications of his atheist worldview will bother him. That as they become more clear and as they be, become more worked out in his consciousness, that they will bother him and they may, will maybe ask him uh, or lead him to ask whether he's willing to really accept those implications and live by them. You know, in other words, are you really willing to accept that according to your worldview, um, human beings have no more objective value than a rat or a pig or a dog or a cockroach? Are you really yeah. willing to accept that according to your worldview, right and wrong have no objective existence? And, and then today's subject, are you willing to accept the fact that based on your worldview, to be logical, you would need to discard entirely the whole idea of unalienable rights. They don't exist in an atheist worldview. There's no foundation for them. They do not exist. The only kind of rights that can possibly logically exist are rights that we grant to one another and therefore rights that we can take away from one another. I want to ask you about your own personal experience here, Ken. <clears throat> so sure. you came to Christ when? How old were you? 22. So 22. So in years 1 through 21 <laughs> of your life, thinking back, um, I know the conversation of atheism and agnosticism has shifted a hundred different ways um, between now and the 20s when you were that age. Uh, yeah. But uh, would you have, if someone had asked you what your basis was for believing that you should do things or shouldn't do certain things, would you have had an an answer, or would you have just said, man, just stump stuff is wrong, man? No, I wouldn't have had an answer in those years before, it, it, which gets back to our subject. I, I, I would say, looking back now, that because I am created in the image and likeness of God, and I have the moral law written on my heart, from the time I was a, a small child, I understood that injustice was bad. You know, I mean, you, you could see it. You know, you would know that if a friend lied to you, it wasn't a good thing. Uh, so m morality was in my life, um, but I was, you know, distracted by other things. You know, in my teen years, it was rock and roll. I was really being in a band and playing music and working on my music. It was girls. It was the various kinds of things you would expect. But I would have to say this, you know, that, okay, I lived a life that was essentially godless um, in, in many areas of my life, at least, that was essentially as though there was no God. But I remember at the age of 21... I was in my backyard with a friend who was an atheist and we were digging a hole to plant a bush or to do something like this. And my atheist friend said, just out of, out of nowhere, he said, this is all we are, dirt. And, and I had a response that was sort of immediate, intuitive, visceral. I remember I looked up at him and I And this said, is before you're a Christian, right? Yeah, there's like a year or more before I before I even, before I found out that my good friend had become a Christian, I began to think about it. Um, but he said, this is all we are, dirt. And I remember I looked up at him and I just, I said, no. You know, so I was not willing to accept when someone put it that bluntly. We're just dirt. I wasn't willing to accept it. But no, I had no philosophy thought through. It was when a good friend of mine became a Christian that I began to talk with him and I began to ask the question, you know, is this stuff, I mean, could this stuff be true? And I began to then read and study and think through uh, the works of C.S. Lewis and others. And so I came to, a wor to the worldview of Christian theism over time. How about you? I, you know, for me, this is all there ever was. You know, I got 
saved at age seven from a life of wine and women and song and such, you know, very, very before. So before seven, you were living a life of wine and women (laughs) for and song and such. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, this was, uh, this is the only way that I ever had to think about the world. Of course, you know, I was thinking about it in a lot of ways is, you know, I didn't want to get in trouble. You know, that was the, Mm -hmm. that was the main driver Mm -hmm. of my moral code. I didn't want to trouble with my parents, but yeah. also didn't want to get in trouble with God. But at the um, at the ripe old age of seven, I, I I think I understood that there was something beyond myself. I mean, when you uh, accept Jesus in your heart mm-hmm. in vacation Bible school, you know you know what you're doing on some level, and on some level, you know the years will sort of clarify what you've done. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 this is why I ask these questions is because I have a lot of people who were in that same boat as me who yeah. prayed that prayer around the same age as me and who have gone on to um again as we've said in previous episodes you know tends more towards not the eugenic side of what we just said but in the you know sort of broader agnostic side of, of what we've what we've been talking about and 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 yet those people uh are some of the most profoundly sensitive people when it comes to matters of justice so mm-hmm. yeah, which puts a finger on this tension again, you know. Yeah, this is this it, is it why this conversation matters everywhere. so much to me. It's like, and, and some of them would say even it's their sensitivity to matters of justice that have led them sort of beyond the confines of Christianity. Uh, but the once you get be, beyond the confines of Christianity and theism, you may feel those issues of justice more deeply, but you have less ground to argue for them from a philosophical. Yeah standpoint yeah. and i mean that's that's the that's the frustrating thing about having these conversations because i see that they care a lot more deeply about the poor and the marginalized mm. and those who've been kicked around by society now than they ever did when we were all christians but they have less of a basis to say no you yeah, cannot and, mistreat the poor you know they just don't, have, I would they defend, don't have the framework anymore and i would defend christianity on that front too by saying that what they were really responding to was certain people they were responding to what certain groups of people who call themselves Christians were doing. Oh, yeah. They, My, weren't responding they were certainly to, responding they, to hypocrisy. Absolutely. They yeah. weren't responding to Christianity and what it actually teaches. They weren't. Again, they were they were going off because they saw something that didn't work or didn't fit right. But, I, you know, I would, I would also say this. There are a lot of people now, especially young people, who read the books of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett, very popularizing, you know, they're referred to as the new atheists, that will read books or they will just look out at the scientific community and they will think to themselves, science has pretty much demonstrated that there is no God, okay? And so they accept the worldview of scientific materialism or atheism or physicalism, naturalism, whatever you want to call it. They accept the worldview but there are many, many, many in, in this camp, but they have not even begun to think through the logical implications of that worldview. And that's why, that's why I like this approach to apologetics, because it, it, it often brings up things that um, atheists who have been reading these books and never, and never even thought about. What are the implications of this worldview in all these various areas of life? And we're going to look at more that go even more, more, that go more deeply. But basically, the idea is that an atheist has a hard time explaining even the most basic fundamental aspects of their experience as a human being once you begin to dig it out. 
and, and, and begin to lay out the implications. Um, let me end with an illustration or, a, or an analogy. We've all heard of the Chinese water torture. You've seen it in the movies, you know, where you tie someone down, you strap them down, and you start dripping water one, one drop every 10 seconds, whatever. And your, your idea is to drive the subject insane. Well, I think of this as an analogy to the form of apologetics and evangelism that I'm describing here. When I use this method of evangelism and I talk about human worth with someone who says that there's no God, we talk about morality, talk about unalienable human rights, um, other issues that we're gonna, we're gonna look at, it's like a drip, just a drip and another drip and another drip. But my aim, rather than driving my friend insane, my, my aim in a way is to drive my friend sane. My, my aim and my goal and my desire is to remind my friend with each drip of who he really is as the image and likeness of God and to remind him of what he really knows in his heart of hearts regarding morality, human value, human rights, whatnot. And my hope is that it will lead him to want to think again about his commitment to a worldview, his espoused commitment, what he says, to a worldview that is in contradiction to all this, that is really in contradiction to who he is and what he really knows. So I'm, I'm hoping to drive my friend sane, to drive my friend sane, which makes me think of a book by Frank Sheed called Theology and Sanity, you know, where he basically oh. argues that that theology, that the just try to check and see if it's over there. I keep it, I keep it pretty handy. Just so. that just as true theology and the application of it in your life leads to ho- sanctity, it also is leading you to sanity. It's leading you to see things correctly, to see things arightly, aright. I think it's over there. I think it's on the other side of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by. It's back there. It's back there. Another brilliant atheist, Douglas Adams. It's back there. It's okay. back there somewhere. Well, I'm done. All right. Well, then I guess I am too. Well, Ken Hensley, <laughs> thanks again for another. We were pretty. This is pretty heavy stuff this week. Um, pretty intense. Uh, more intense, I think, than any of the other ones we've done so far in this series. Just because, you know, this really does sort of drill down on this question of that, that matters to so many of us. I mean, I think people have a strong, strong sense, um, strongest in my lifetime, really, of of human rights, whatever that means. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, to really kind of understanding what yeah. is what provides for human rights i mean that's an important question and and where do those rights come from do they come from the state Uh, because that's where a lot of people seem to think human rights come from so yeah ken uh i hope our listeners have got some thought i know they've got some thoughts because all you had to do was say hitler and there's going to be like 50 comments from people having opinions about things uh but still uh if you want to join the conversation i'm not pulling the hitler card i'm talking about him in a serious way good but i told you i had nothing more to say so please excise that Okay. From the record. Strike that from the record. So, <laughs> but if you want to be on the record by typing your questions uh, to us, please come over to uh, community.chnetwork.org against community.chnetwork.org. Strike that from the record. Only use the ones that I pronounce correctly. But Strike it. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, again, chnetwork.org for all the resources as well. I'm Matt Swain. Ken Hensley, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. See you later.